<clears throat> with all of the passing of um, juice and bread and things, we forgot to take up the offering. So we're going to do that now. If you're, <laughs> sorry, if you're a guest, you can just let it ride by. Um, this is uh, people who consider Stonebridge their home church. Can, if you're a guest, just let it go. Um, as Bo said, we've been uh, talking about the end times we started a couple of weeks ago. And kind of the question we're asking is, is this the end? And if it is, then what does that mean for us? And if it's not, does it really matter? So that's kind of the issues that we're looking at. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 25, which is the parable of the uh, ten virgins. And they're these virgins who are waiting on a bride, on a groom to come. And they have half of them have oil in their lamp and half of them don't. And the ones that don't aren't ready. They miss when the bridegroom comes and they're shut out of the house. And what we took away from that was, for us, the important thing is to get ready. We need to be ready for the end. Whether this is the end or not, we need to be ready. My opinion is everything that that you read about in Revelation or in other end-time passages in the Bible, all of that stuff has, has been going on since time began. It's Since Genesis 3, it's the same stuff over and over and over again. It's just at the end, it will be more intense than it's ever been before. So even if none of us are alive during this end time deal, which I have no idea when that is, the same issues that, are, that, that we read about in Revelation will still be applicable to, to our lives, and we need to be ready. So that's kind of the theory that we're working on, and today we're going to get into a few of the details. This is Matthew 13. I'm going to read um, one little portion from this parable of the sower that you've heard. This is Jesus telling a story about a farmer who sows seed. This is starting in verse 6. Excuse me, verse 5. Some that seed, some seed fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Now if you look over to verse 20, this is Jesus explaining what he just said, that little portion of the parable. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, it lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Kind of the point I want us to focus on today is we don't want to be shallow soil. We don't want to fall away. We don't want to bail when things get difficult. That word persecution that we just read is actually... It's the same word for tribulation. We talked about this a few uh, weeks ago in Revelation when it talks about the great tribulation. It's the same word. When when tribulation comes because of the word, they fall away. And we don't want to be the kind of people that fall away. You don't get any points for having been a Christian for some short amount of time and then bailing on God when things get tough. There's no reward for that. Um, In fact, 2 Peter 2.21 says this, It would have been better for them, these are people who at one point were Christians and then turned away not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. That's not who we want to be. We want to be like the the soil, the tree that Alan read about from Jeremiah 17 that has deep roots in a stream, leaves that are always green, doesn't worry in a year of drought and always produces fruit. That's what we want to be. We don't want to be folks that get really excited about God when things are going great, tough times come, we bail and we're out. So that's what we want to talk about today. How do we become that type of soil where we can have deep roots? I told you all a few weeks ago, I believe that as Christians, we're going to have to live through the great 
tribulation. We talked about that pre-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. Just a quick little recap. Some people think that Jesus is going to kind of zap up the church. That's the rapture to heaven before things get really bad. I'm not one of those people. I believe we're going to have to live through it and we'll be taken up to heaven after. And you can disagree with me. You'd be wrong, but you can disagree if you want to. I can give you my case scripturally on why I think that we don't have time this morning and then you can give me yours and we'll see who wins. So, but what I did say is, even if you do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, if you don't think you're going to have to live through that really tough time, if you're wrong, you're in bad shape. If I'm wrong, big deal. That just means I get taken up before things get really bad. And we need to be ready. And Jesus says this in John 16.33, In this world you will experience tribulation. It's that same word. That word tribulation occurs 43 times in the New Testament. And it's translated, if you have an NIV Bible, there's only one time that it's translated tribulation, and that's in Revelation. Every other time it, it, they use a different word. Uh, they use suffering or persecution or something like that. It's the same Greek word. And that's what Jesus says here in John 16.33, In this world you will experience tribulation. So even if you believe you're going to get taken up to heaven before the great tribulation, when things get really bad, if you believe Jesus, you're going to have to experience tribulation in this world. It just won't be as intense as maybe the great tribulation. So hopefully you can pull something from this. All right, this is Revelation 6. Y'all just uh, hang on. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I watched as the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the, land, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the, land, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as lake figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Kind of the setting there, John um, has had a vision, which is kind of like a dream when you're asleep, I mean when you're awake. He has this vision, and in this vision he sees, uh, he's in heaven in this throne room, and he describes in chapter 4 and 5 what he sees. And one of the things he sees is a big scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. And that's probably like clay or wax that was um, 
put over the part where the scroll would have overlapped, and then there's maybe somebody put their like a signet ring in there to seal it. And so you've got a scroll that's totally sealed up, and nobody can open it, and John starts crying because nobody can open it, and then Jesus shows up. And everyone starts worshiping Jesus because he can open the scroll. So that's chapter 4 and 5. In chapter 6, he, Jesus actually begins to open the scroll, and he's just kind of popping off these seven seals. And the first seal, there's a white horse. It's the four horsemen. You've heard that. Four horsemen. Some say four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've got the white horse, the red horse, this black horse, this pale horse, and then you've got these other two things in the fifth and the sixth seal. I give you my take, and again, you can, you can go with me or you can disagree. It's completely up to you. This is my understanding. I would say the first seal, the white horse, is actually the preaching of the gospel. I would say the second horse, that's the red one, is violence and war. The third, the black, is death and the different ways that death comes here. It talks about sword, famine, plague, and wild beasts. That's just death. And then the, no, that was the fourth seal. The third one, excuse me, was the black horse, and that's famine. So those to me are the four horsemen. Those are what those first four seals are. And the fifth one is martyrdom. And I would say all five of those seals have already been opened. At least since the time of Jesus, all, we've seen all five of those things active in the world. I believe each one of those seals is uh, it's the way God works out either his salvation or his judgment in the earth. The whole theme of the book of Revelation, it's a promise that God will make everything right. That in the end, he will judge the wicked, he will vindicate the righteous, and he will cleanse the earth. So there's a place for his people to dwell with him forever. That's the... that's. Revelation in two sentences. That's what the whole book is about. It's God promising, I'm going to do this. I'm going to judge the wicked, vindicate the righteous, and I'm going to cleanse the earth of wickedness so there's a place for me and my people to dwell together forever. That's what Revelation's about. And what we see here, I think, in chapter 6 kind of sets the stage for the whole rest of the book. Jesus takes a scroll and he starts opening it. I think those first five seals, again, have already been opened because we've seen we see all five of those things already happening. If you want to correlate Revelation and the words of Jesus, you can go back and look at Matthew 24, and I would say verses 4 through 14 describe these first five seals. You can just go back. We don't have time to read it and for me to make all the parallels. Just go back and look. I think it's chapter, verses 4 through 14. You'll see in there a lot of what these seals are. It talks about earthquakes. It talks about War, it talks about the gospel being preached to all nations. You see a lot of the things there that you can see right here in Revelation. I think we're living in that time. We're living in a time when these first five seals have been opened. And I would say, in my opinion, at least since Pentecost, that's we've been there. All of these things are happening. The sixth seal is when things get a little hairy to me. That's... Um, Starting in verse 12, the sixth seal, there's a great earthquake. Sun turns black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The moon turns blood red. Stars fall from the sky. Who knows what in the world that looks like. The sky receded like a scroll. Again, have no idea. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. And everybody's hiding under rocks saying, Hide us from the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. The sixth seal... I think is called the day of the Lord. That's a technical term in the Bible. There's a, a time period you see it in the Old Testament and in the New called the day of the Lord. Sometimes in your Bible, when it, day will be capitalized when they're referring to the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called the day, the great day, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of God. Those different 
designations all point to the same thing. There will be a time when God will visit earth again in order to dispense justice. That means punish the wicked and vindicate the righteous. When that happens, that is the day of the Lord. I don't think it will be a literal 24-hour days. I think it's going to be some time span. I don't know how long. Where God, Jesus is going to come and he's going to make things right. He's going to judge the righteous and the wicked, which will be bad for the wicked and good for the righteous. And he will cleanse the earth in preparation for forever with him, he and his people living together forever. I don't believe that the sixth seal has been opened. This is from Joel 2, 30 and 31. This is God talking. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Those are some those cosmic signs that will indicate that this is the day of the Lord. Something's going to happen with the sun, something's going to happen with the moon, and something's going to happen with the stars, and we're all going to know it. If you want to correlate this to what Jesus said, you can go to Matthew twenty four twenty nine. He quotes that verse in Joel and says, that's going to happen. And then the next verse, it says, and then the Son of Man will appear. That's when Jesus will come back. Well, after we see these signs in heaven. I don't think the sixth seal has been opened because I don't think the sun's turned black and I don't think the moon's turned to blood and there's still stars in the sky. So that's me on that. I don't believe the sixth seal has been opened. So we're living, in my opinion, after the first five, but before the sixth. And I think when the sixth open is when things actually start getting... That's when the intensity really starts cranking up because that's when God is saying, okay, now's the time. I'm coming to judge the righteous and the wicked. The wicked are going to experience what you read here. It's called the wrath of God. You see that in uh, verse 16 and 17. They say twice, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God. You see that phrase throughout the Bible as well. That is not a pleasant thing. The wrath of God is his justice in judging those who live in rebellion towards him. It's not mean. It's 100% justified. But it is not pleasant. We just sang a song. We were all born under the wrath of God. Because we were all born in sin. And from the moment we could choose, we chose to rebel against the Lord. We're all born under wrath. And we live under the wrath of God until we're saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. That's where that whole idea of being saved comes from. We're saved from God's wrath. Unless you are saved, you will experience the wrath of God. If you want to know what that looks like, I would say start reading in Revelation 8 and read through and you'll get a picture of that. It's not pleasant at all. It's not God being mean. It's just at some point he says, he set a time out here somewhere and he says, at this moment, that's when I'm coming back and I'm going to judge the wicked. And I'm going to vindicate the righteous. You heard that in that fifth seal. These martyrs are saying, how long, O oh God? How long are you going to let us not be vindicated? How long are you going to let wickedness triumph? And God says, until the number's complete. There's this idea throughout Revelation that there's a set time. He's got the day circled on his calendar. We don't know what it is, but he does. And when all this stuff comes together and we hit that day, he's going to say, okay, enough's enough. And that will be the day of the Lord. When he comes back and those who are not Christians, people who have not been saved, people who are not trusting in Jesus, however you want to say that, people who are not followers of Christ, whatever little phrase you want to use, in, the, in Revelation those people are called the inhabitants of the earth. 
And that phrase occurs seven times in Revelation, and every time it occurs, it's bad for the inhabitants of the earth. Those are people who are living in rebellion to God, and they will experience the wrath of the Lamb. It will not be good. This is a little... I'm going to take a little tangent here on wrath. This is Romans 1, 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, having been understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And this is Romans 2, 5 through 6. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. The picture there, again, is we're all born under the wrath of God, and we will continue under the wrath of God until we're saved, until Jesus says, until we put our trust in Jesus because he bore the wrath of God for us. Somebody's going to pay. It's you or it's him. And he's already paid. And you can either choose to accept that payment or not and pay it yourself. That's up to you. If you want to pay the bill, you can pay the bill. But that means you'll experience the wrath of God. I don't know if you all remember, several months ago we talked about how God wants to mold us and we said he'll use his hands if we'll we'll cooperate with him. And he'll mold us and shape us. And we said if we don't cooperate, he uses a hammer and a chisel. The wrath of God is the hammer and the chisel. That's him doing everything he can to get our attention, to get us, to turn. It's interesting, there's several places in Revelation where after something just wretched has happened, you see this little commentary, the people still did not repent. This is Revelation 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, this is after these six trumpets have all sounded, and the trumpets are terrible things. The, a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the ocean turns to blood, a third of the fresh water is bitter, um, A third of the stars and the sun turns dark. I don't even know what that looks like. There are these locusts that torment people for five months. And then there's a huge demonic army of 200 million people that wipe out a large portion of humanity. So after these six things have happened, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot be seen or heard or talked nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So even in the midst of his wrath, you see God is he's doing all this stuff, hoping people will repent. It's not, yes, there's, there's vengeance there, there's judgment there, but the purpose behind it is still mercy. I think some people, when you read Revelation, you say, why didn't he just flip the switch and kind of nuke everybody? Why does it have to be all of this series of judgments that just get worse and worse and worse and... Like, instead of a third, why don't you just do the whole thing at once? Let's just get it over with. Just rip the band-aid off and let's be done. And that's not what you read in Revelation. It's slow. There's seven of these things and seven of these things, and they last for this many months, and there's a space in between, and it's like this brutally painful process. Some people say it'll last seven years. Maybe Who knows? What's going on? And I think what God is doing is he's giving people a chance. Because he knows there's going to be a time where you're not going to have a chance anymore. And so he's giving people time. And they haven't, you haven't responded for whatever he's done, whatever he's doing now. There are people who are not responding. There are people who hear the gospel and they don't respond. The tragedy happens in their life. Maybe an opportunity to turn to God. They don't respond. Maybe that's your own story. You've ignored God. You've resisted God for a long time. 
And sometimes he gets a megaphone to try to get your attention. To me, these judgments and revelation, that's like the biggest megaphone he's got. He's doing stuff that is totally, undeniably supernatural and is terrible to try to get people to wake up to the fact that the end is coming and they are experiencing the judgment of God. And if they don't repent, that's how it's going to be forever. So yes, there's a judging aspect, but there's also this heart of mercy that's saying, will you guys repent? Will you repent? And Revelation says that people won't. There's only one way to avoid the wrath of God, and that's to follow Jesus. Let me read three things real quick. Romans 5 and 9, or 5 verse 9. Since we've uh, now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. And 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you will be saved from the wrath of God. That's what it means to be saved. You're saved from the wrath of God. So the stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit today and over the next few weeks is really bad. As a Christian, you're promised to be saved from that. That's what you're saved from. You're saved from experiencing the wrath of God. Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we don't have to pay that bill. If you're not a Christian, then you're currently living under the wrath of God, and that's how you will experience the wrath of God until you put your faith in Jesus. You can't work your way out of it. You can't talk your way out of it. You can't good deed your way out of it. You can't my mama went to church your way out of it. There's nothing you can do. We're all born under the wrath of God, and the only thing that gets us out from under that is the blood of Jesus. Clear? Good. Back to Revelation. Okay, so he opens the sixth seal, talks about the wrath. We took that tangent. This is what John sees next. After this, after this thing with the, you know, the sun turning black and people asking for mountains to fall on their head and all of that, this is what John sees. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel uh, coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but what I want you to see is chapter 7 comes before chapter 8. You just keep that in mind. 7 comes before 8. This is uh, chapter 8. Back to the scroll, eight one. When he, the Lamb, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And then these seven trumpets make the seven seals that we just read about look like, you know, a cakewalk. So you've got seven comes before eight. This is my opinion. Again, you can disagree. I don't think the sixth seal's been opened, so I don't think the seventh has been opened either. They go in order. So I think we're living in between the fifth and the sixth seal. Fifth is open, sixth isn't. When the sixth is open, everybody's going to know because there's going to be all this cosmic stuff going on. And that is going to usher in this time where God, Jesus is kind of pouring out his wrath. 
And in my opinion, everything you read from Revelation 8, 6, pretty much through the end of the book, until you get to about chapter 20, I think is the contents of this scroll. Actually, I think the whole thing is the contents of the scroll that it's finally opened. So the seventh seal is open. They can unroll the scroll, and they're reading. That's what John's seeing. He's seeing what's written on this scroll, which I think is God saying this is what's going to happen at the end. I think the contents of the scroll is a description of the day of the Lord, in my opinion. What's the day of the Lord? That's what this scroll is telling us. And so John's seeing a vision of the day of the Lord, which is going to be a time where God judges the wicked and vindicates the righteous. Revelation is heavy on judging the wicked, not so much on vindicating the righteous. If you read through, most of the stuff is not pleasant. That's just, it is what it is. And that's, I think, what, what God is communicating. Is there will be this time where he's going to, the throttle's kind of going to be pushed in terms of judging the wicked. And in my opinion, everything that follows in Revelation 8 is really geared towards these people who are the inhabitants of the earth. And the inhabitants of the earth are people who are not trusting in Jesus. I don't think as Christians we're going to have been zapped away. But I don't necessarily think that what's going on here, it doesn't apply to us directly. And I'm going to make a parallel in the Old Testament. So just, I'll say that for now. And I think it comes back to chapter 7 where we're sealed before the scroll's opened. I think once this scroll is opened, what you see is the day of the Lord. Here's God's wrath and it's going to be nasty. But before that happens you see the sealing of believers. The sealing of the 144. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. From God's perspective, it's 144,000. That's a perfect number. It's complete. From our perspective, it's a great multitude that you can't count. You can see that in the second half of chapter 7. It's the same group of people, two different perspectives. What God said to the martyrs who asked him in the fifth seal, when are you going to do this? He said, when your number's complete. The number's complete when there's 144,000. That's not a literal number. You get that. That's the number, that's when it's complete. When there's 144,000 of these guys, then I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. So chapter 7 is hope for Christians, in my opinion. What it's saying is you're going to be sealed during this day of the Lord. I have no idea what that means at all. Um, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about the Holy... Let me read this to you. It says, Having believed, you are marked in Him, in Jesus, with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. So I think, in my opinion, there's some sense in which the Holy Spirit will serve as the seal, but I don't know what... I'm not even going to speculate. I don't know what that means. All I know is, from God's perspective, He's saying, you guys are going to be safe. I'm going to keep you. From God's perspective, I'm keeping you. You're not going to experience my wrath. You're saved. You're saved from his wrath. We're not going to experience that. Everybody good? Let me give you one brief example. In, uh, in Exodus, the first few chapters, Moses is trying to get Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. The Israelites are enslaved. He's trying to get them out of Egypt so they can worship God. Pharaoh keeps saying no. Y'all have all heard this story. And so what God, he sends ten plagues on Egypt in order to kind of demonstrate his superiority over the Egyptian gods and for Pharaoh to let them go. Y'all have heard this. The first plague, he turns the Nile to blood. The second plague, there's um, all these frogs come into Egypt. Both of those two plagues, the Egyptian magicians could duplicate. I think the Hebrews experienced both of those. They drank from the Nile when it was blood. They couldn't drink from it either. 
they did this little thing where they like dug out the side and the sand filtered, whatever it was, so they were able to drink. But they experienced that plague. I think the frogs, I think they experienced that too because the Egyptians could duplicate it. The third plague is gnats, which you can imagine all the frogs die. You're going to get so you get all these gnats around, and I don't. I think the I think the Hebrews experienced that plague as well, and I think it was a huge nuisance. Then, starting with the fourth one, God says, "I'm going to make a distinction between my people and the people of Egypt," and I think every other plague only applied to the Egyptians. Now, the Hebrews were still there. They were living in a part of Egypt called Goshen. They had not been delivered. They would not been raptured out of Egypt. They are still living there. But I don't think they're experiencing these plagues. I can point you to the Bible verses. God sealed them. He didn't, he didn't take them away from where this stuff was happening. He sealed them through it. The fourth plague is... Um, hold on, I wrote it down because I just lost my train of thought. It's... Uh, Oh, flies. Great. There's all these flies, and God says only the Egyptian homes are going to have flies. The people in Goshen, those are the Hebrews, won't. And they didn't. The fifth plague is livestock. And God goes through and he kills the livestock of the Egyptians, but none of the livestock of the Hebrews. The next one is boils. Only the Egyptians got boils, not the Hebrews. Uh, Hail uh, was the next one. It says throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. The only place that did not hail was a land of Goshen where the Israelites lived. The locust says all of Egypt was full of locusts. Darkness, total darkness covered all Egypt for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And if you think about that, that's pretty amazing. They lived in the same country, and part of it was dark, and part of it was light. And then the last one is the one that you all know, the, where the angel of God goes through and kills the firstborn of every Egyptian. And the Hebrews that had blood on their doorposts, the angel passed over those homes. Only the Egyptian people experienced that plague. That, to me, is a picture of the end times for us. We have an Old Testament example. Like, if you were living in Egypt during that time, you would have thought the world is coming to an end, wouldn't you? The Nile turns blood, frogs all in your house, gnats all in your house, flies all in your house, your livestock are dying, there's massive hailstorm killing everything that's dark for three days. It says in in uh, Exodus, it says they could feel the darkness. There was something heavy about it. And then you wake up one day and the firstborn and every household of the Egyptians is dead. You think, like, that's it. That's why the guys are like, Pharaoh's like, get your people out of here as fast as you can. Get out now. This is the end. I think if, if John had a vision before what happened in Exodus happened, I think it'd look a lot like Revelation. I think that's what he would have been seeing. And so when we read Revelation, it's going to look a lot like that, in my opinion, except it's going to be global in scope. And we, as the children of God, if you're a Christian, will be kind of like the Hebrews. We'll be the ones living in Goshen. And God's going to make a distinction between us and the people who are sealed with the Spirit of God and people who have the mark of the beast on them. I don't know what the mark of the beast is, but it's going to differentiate There's going to be a mark of God and a mark of the beast. And the people with the mark of the beast are going to experience the wrath of God. And the people with the mark of God won't. He will seal us through. I don't think we're going to be Star Trek out of here. Just like the the Hebrews were not zapped out of Egypt. They lived through it. They were sealed through it. Yeah, they probably were inconvenienced on some level. But they 
lived through it. They didn't experience the full weight of the wrath of God. And I think the same thing will be true for us. That's that. Back to today. The soil. I said none of us want, I don't think we want to be shallow soil. We don't want to be the kind of people who bail when things get difficult. So how do we uh, know if we're shallow soil or if we're deep? We don't live in a time of persecution. None of us are persecuted for our faith. So how do we know how we're going to do? How do we know if we're going to stand the test? That's what I want to talk about real briefly. We said, um, John 16, Jesus promised tribulation to everyone. That word tribulation means pressed together. So we're all going to be squeezed. And when you're squeezed, what's in you comes out. It's just like a tube of toothpaste. You, sque- you squeeze crest, and crest is what comes out. What's in there comes out of there. Matthew 12, I think it's 35, says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. What's in you eventually will come out of you. When you're pressed together, what's going to come out? I'm going to ask a question. Feel free to respond. Is anybody in here a cusser? I have one honest person in the room. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. So, to me, there's like there's about four different types of cussers. There are repeaters who only cuss when they're saying somebody else's cuss word. Where you're telling a story, you're telling a joke, and somehow there's you don't take ownership of that. It's not really your cuss word. You're just saying what somebody else said, so you're clear. There are people who just do first letters. You know, they don't actually say the word. They just give you the first letter of the cuss word, and then you can fill in the blank as well. I think they're actually, this is a growing population, selective cussers. You pick certain words that are okay. You might not say that, like, if there's seven cuss words, maybe you only say three of them. And the three that you say are classier than these other four (laughs) that you would never say because those are just wrong. And so we all have, maybe there's a select vocabulary that we have of words that we, that we use. And then there are other people, and I know we have at least one in the room because his hand went up first, are just full out cussed, like the whole deal. That no, no apologies, no qualms, they cuss, they say them all, and they do it with pride. I actually, I'm not, I cussed for one year of my life. It was a very distinct time period. My parents didn't cuss. And I was never around cussers, so it went until the sixth grade. I made a friend in the sixth grade when all our elementary schools went to the same junior high, and I met a guy from another elementary school. We got to be really good friends, and he was a huge cusser, and he rubbed off on me during the sixth grade year. And so I started cussing like a sailor when I was 12, whatever. And one time I almost let fly at the dinner table, and that's when I knew things were getting out of hand. And I I became a Christian the summer after my sixth grade year at a camp, and I pretty much quit cussing immediately, which, whatever, out of all the things God could do, I'm not sure why that was the one. I definitely had bigger issues in my life than my vocabulary, but I just, I didn't cuss after that. Those, which is no, like I said, I got plenty of other issues. But those, those words aren't in me. I remember I was in college and I was um, putting a, a weight on a bar. It was a plate, a 45-pound plate. And I picked it up, and my hands were sweaty, and I dropped it, and it landed on my toe. And I didn't cuss. Because those words aren't in me. They're just, which is, again, don't pat me on the back, come live with me for a while, and you'll think, gosh, I wish you cussed instead of doing these other things. <laughs> because that would be, those are worse. So, I'm not saying anything good about myself, but that's just, those things aren't in me, so they don't come out of me. You, if I take a hammer and you smash my thumb, a cuss word's not going to come out. It's just not. Because those things aren't 
in me, but what is in me will come out when I'm squeezed. And the same thing is true for y'all. It's kind of like the Gatorade commercial. If you drink the blue Gatorade, you sweat blue. What do you sweat? What comes out of you when you're squeezed? I think that's the issue with tribulation. We're all promised, if you're a Christian, you will be sealed through the wrath of God. You don't need to worry about that. You can, When you read those chapters in Revelation that are so just damaging, what's going to happen? And you think, holy moly, how in the world could I ever make it through there? God will seal you through that. You're going to have to live through it. There are a couple of different places in Revelation 13 and 14 where John says this requires patient endurance on the part of the saints. That word patient endurance is perseverance. In, in Romans 5.3, Paul says tribulation, your NIV will say suffering, the words tribulation produces perseverance. Tribulation, which you're promised, produces perseverance, which you will need to get through the wrath of the Lamb, which you're promised to be sealed through. It all ties together. So when you experience tribulation, when you're pressed together here, what comes out of you will show you how deep your roots are. Because that's, that's the deal. It's kind of like where the rubber meets the road. When you're pressed, what comes out? Because that's what's in there. We can all fake it when things are going well. We can. When, when we're rolling along, we can all pretend. But when things get hard, that's when we really know what's in our hearts. Now, we don't have persecution. So you say, well, how do I know? We don't have persecution, but we do have stress. And I actually think stress is nowhere near persecution, but it does something. Some of us, when we're under stress, that's us getting pressed. And stuff comes out when we're under stress. Do you have that thing up there? This is a test some of y'all maybe have seen. Can y'all read that? What these... Dudes have done is they've kind of given a numerical equivalent to different uh, life events. And if any of these things have happened to you in the past year, what you're supposed to do is start adding up your score. You can start, you're already doing that. So uh, add up your, you add up your score and then there's a, a threshold. And if you're over the threshold, then you're at risk of some type of stress-related illness. Let's see the next one. Y'all, you're going to have to go fast. Round up. So, um... You see all these different things that are happening. There was one I thought was um, interesting. It's on the next. Yeah, vacation is on the stress level, as is Christmas. And both of those are more stressful than breaking the law. So (laughs) I thought that was... uh, Change in the number of family reunions also is apparently more stressful than breaking... But look, church is up there too. We're like number 20. So um, anyway, y'all can do that and you can kind of come up with your number. If you have above 250, then apparently you have serious stress problems. If you have more than 250 points in the past year, it doesn't mean you don't know how to handle stress. It just means you've experienced a lot of these major life events and you are prone to stress-related illnesses. I don't know about any of that. All I know is when people feel stress, stuff comes out. And that... You can probably think of times in the last week or month where you felt pressed together. Bills aren't being paid, kids are screaming, traffic, whatever causes you stress, and something has come out, and you might not have known it was in there. That, to me, is an indication, no guilt, that that's an indication of where the roots are, or maybe a better indication of where the rocks are that need to come out, the things that are, that are preventing you from having deep soil and from having deep roots. Stress is kind of, is one of those things that will bring, it's a pushing, because there's a lot of stuff we don't experience here in America. 
There's 200 million Christians around the world who right now are at risk because of their faith. About 40 different countries, there's 200 million Christians who right now could be killed, imprisoned, their kids could be kidnapped, raped, you name it, beaten because of their faith. Every year, there's about 161,000 Christians who are killed solely for the fact that they are Christians. They're martyred. That, we don't live in that reality here, and we don't need to go looking for it. But there are things about living here that do push and cause things to come out. And what I, all I want to say to you is, well, what's in you? Because eventually, it's going to come out of you. And just like I think even things as bad as the wrath of God are an expression of God's mercy, trying to get people in, he's yelling with a megaphone, I think tribulation can be the same thing. You're going to be pressed together. And when you see what comes out, like to me that's just a chance to have a do-over. If you don't like what's coming out of you, well, you still have time to fix it. You still have time to make it right. You still have time to take those rocks out and to develop good soil so that you are this tree that Alan read about in Jeremiah 17, with deep roots, always green leaves. You don't worry about trout, and you always bear fruit. That's what we want to be. So just as we wrap up, this, the question I want to ask is not, are you a pre-tribulation rapturist or post, and you know, what do you think about the horsemen and the seals? Whatever. That stuff is going to happen, and it's going to happen, and we're going to be along for the ride for all of that. Pulling it back to today, I think the issue is, when it comes to tribulation, whether you think you're going to be here during the big, great tribulation or not, you're going to experience it here because Jesus promised it. Again, 43 times in the New Testament, you're going to see this word every context. And the context is always persevere for Christians. Persevere through that. What we want to know is do we have deep roots? If we happen to be some of those who are alive at the end, or if we just happen to be people who have really tough times in life, are we going to make it or are we going to bail? If you have shallow roots, Jesus says you're going to bail. When the sun comes up, you wither and die. And that's not who we want to be as a people, I don't think. If you're going to do that, go ahead and quit now. And save yourself the heartache of quitting later. That's not who we want to be. We want to have deep roots. And I think one of the things you can look at to see if you have deep roots is what comes out of you when you're pressed. If what comes out of you is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, then you probably have deep roots. If what comes out of you is anger or vengeance or an emotional outburst, we call those temper tantrums, your roots might not be very deep. Or at least maybe not very deep in this one area. Anxiety and worry, if that's what comes out of you. Those are bad things, and those are things that the Lord, he'll, he'll take them out to allow your roots to go deep if you'll give them the chance. You don't have to work it. You don't have to bring in any extra soil, and you don't have to take the rocks out. You just have to say, I need help, and then he'll tell you what to do from there. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to pray. You guys can come back up. We're going to worship for a bit, and I would just say in terms of um, ministry, we would, we'll have a couple of teams up here. I'll be more than happy to pray with you about anything you have going on in your life. Y'all can go ahead and stand up. And I would just encourage you with this. If you say when you're squeezed, if something comes out that you don't like, just let us pray with you about that. It doesn't mean that you're going to hell. It doesn't mean you have the mark of the beast or any of that stuff. It just means you're a person and there's an area in your life that's not there yet. And we want to pray 
that the Lord will help you get there. If you don't like something when you're squeezed, if you don't like what comes out, I'm not talking about cussing, if you don't like what comes out of you, then let us pray that the Lord will um, take that rock out so that you'll have deep soil. Let me pray.